Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Then I wrote another novel. I was living in Seattle. One that I sent to my agent, and it was so bad that we never spoke of it again. Hello, writers. Welcome back to Write Off, the podcast about writing rejection in all its forms, from self-doubt to books not selling. I'm your host, Francesca Steele, a journalist and writer based in London. And if you want to know more about my own experience with writing rejection, you can hear about that in the first season. Andrew Sean Greer is the Pulitzer Prize winning writer of six novels, including Less and Less is Lost, which are both bittersweet tragicomic road trip tales about Arthur Less, a failing and flailing midlist novelist. But it's not just through his fiction that Greer is familiar with midlist despondency. He originally wrote less when he was feeling exactly that way himself, but then, although it was rejected by 12 British publishers, felt slightly less despondent when it went on to win the Pulitzer. Last year, he published a follow-on, Less is Lost, which his agent advised him not to write. I love this interview. Andrew is just such a jolly, yet occasionally reassuringly despairing writer, racking up dozens of drafts and being honest about the poverty early writing can involve. I loved in particular talking to him about the details of turning the originally serious less into a comic novel, and also about finding the diamond heist. You'll have to listen on to find out what that means, but I think it's one of the best pieces of advice I've ever heard about writing. Find the diamond heist. This episode of Write-Off is sponsored by The Novelry. The Novelry is one of the world's best-loved writing schools, with more five-star reviews on Trustpilot than any other. With one-to-one coaching from best-selling authors, feedback from publishing editors, and step-by-step daily lessons to create, write, and complete your book. On the classic Storytelling Foundation course, you'll build your story idea, looking at the ingredients of the best-selling novels of all time to come up with a story that's uniquely yours. On the 90-day novel course, you'll get that first draft done fast with step-by-step daily guidance and one-to-one coaching from a published author. 
On the big edit, you'll work with a publishing editor to polish the second draft and beyond, taking the manuscript to publishing standard. The Novelry offers courses, coaching and community, a three-pronged approach to write and finish your novel. I'd just like to add that I myself have actually just started one of their courses and it's such a wonderful community, really fun, really engaged. I highly recommend it. Make this your year. Sign up at thenovelry.com today and discover the courses so many writers describe as life-changing. So let's listen to Andrew. Well, it was a a more serious book um, with a different setup entirely and i i really disliked writing it because i was writing a character who was suddenly too close to myself and who i therefore didn't feel sorry for and and i also had to confront the fact that like well maybe 20 years ago a a white gay male novelist would be someone you would really um is fighting against the the tide of oppression there was hardly anybody was published like me um not true anymore and so I had to kind of take into account my own privilege. And I just decided that it'd be funnier to make fun of the character. Um, and and I also then realized I was doing a lot of travel writing, that I could make it a travel book um, instead of a, a, a mopey walk around a city book. And so then, then I knew what I wanted to do. And that's right, because it originally started as... Uh, Arthur Less walking around San Francisco, didn't it? As as a serious novelist himself. Oh, um, oh yeah. And and when you initially embarked on this more serious novel, why did you why did you do that? Why did you have this character, serious or comic, who was wandering around a city, feeling sorry for himself and feeling sorry about his work? Because I was a failure. because I mean there's a there's different kinds of failure there's or or feelings of failure I think most novelists that almost there's so many stages of it there is the debut novel failure but there's also the fifth novel failure which is its own breed because publishers you've proven you can't make it publishers won't publish your next book because you've got a track record that shows no one is ever going to buy you. And I had a book that came out called The Impossible Lives of Greta Wells that to me, I'm not a very good judge of this kind of thing, was basically um, was beneath notice was the way I felt. And and it just, uh, it destroyed me. And so I wanted to write about, I always write about whatever emotion I'm in to explore it. And so that's what I wanted to explore, a feeling of, of, of total failure as a writer. And it was, and actually it was so intense for me that I couldn't do it seriously. Um, I could only do it funny, you know, that was the only, because I knew it was absurd. <laughs> you know, I wasn't in physical discomfort exactly, but um, it was something I, I thought about all the time. Mm. And, and. I mean, Arthur Less has has various conversations with people, including one with a woman in, I think it's a woman in Morocco who says to him, look, nobody feels sorry for a guy like that. And he says, what, not even when he's gay. And she says, nope. <laughs> and it's quite a funny <laughs> conversation. And I wonder if you had various conversations of this sort. I mean, how did your epiphany about turning it comic happen? I mean, it just, these are all conversations with myself, which is why I don't think it's auto fiction because also that woman in Morocco is me, (laughs) you know? So it is, 
I mean, Arthur looks like me and has some of my experiences, but I certainly didn't take his precise trip. And all the other characters are, and the, the narrator is more me than anyone. That's the person telling the story and the tone of the book sounds like me, which is not Arthur Less. We yeah. don't know what his writing yeah. is. Um, it just happened because I go swimming every morning with a dear friend of mine who's also a writer. And we swim very slowly in the, it's very cold, the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and uh, it's great for thinking. So we talk about our books. And I was um, just panicking about what I was going to do with this book I'd been trying to work on and failing. And I had nothing to lose. Suddenly I realized by trying to make it funny, you know, it was not working as it was. So I was willing to try anything. Mm. And how, how far into it had you got at that point? I mean, I'd worked on it for a year. Wow. Okay. And and so were you sort of just turning up at your desk every day and sort of wading through mud and kind of knowing it wasn't working and just pushing on? Yeah. Or even on really bad days, I would just go out with a notebook and walk around and try to just pay attention to physical details and be present as an artist, even if I wasn't, the pages weren't great. A lot of the pages surprisingly are in less. Um, you just don't realize that they're from a serious book because they come across as, as, as funny once I rewrote them a little bit. So it's, it's the same book. It's just a different way of um, experiencing those same really, really hard emotions. Mm, yeah I mean I love that and Arthur Less when he decides to because there's a moment in the book where he decides to turn his serious book into a funny one well and, why not um, yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> it's, it's it's a lot of fun and he um and he describes it as being really easy it just he just sort of you sort of really um hone in on the details of of transforming that from serious to comic um and he does take these bits that are in the book already his fictional book and um and just sort of turn them on their heads it, was it easy like that for you is that why you wrote it that way do you just take yeah. these scenes and and sort of switch them yeah yeah it was once i started writing it well what happens I, I it's hard for me to remember exactly how it happened but i do recall that i went to italy for a prize ceremony that was very baffling to me and then i went and visited a friend who runs an artist residency and i was there for 2 weeks and i just wrote down sort of what happened and changed it into my own version of it. And I love, it was so easy to write and I loved it. And it's unchanged. The chapter uh, less Italian is exactly what I wrote in two weeks, which is, um, and I thought when you're a writer and you've had that sensation of this is how to tell the story, you just know that's the only way to do it. Mm. You're like that's, that's the best gift. Yeah. That's the best gift you can have as a writer is to know exactly how to tell the story. It can take forever, but you know you're going to be able to do it because you have the way to tell it. Mm. Having had that experience now of being in the doldrums and then working on this novel that's not quite working and then finding this solution, which, and we'll get to this, you know, ended up winning you a Pulitzer. Um, did you, do you now feel more confident that when you have an issue with a book, if you, if you sort of wait and try hard enough and wait long enough, that the solution will come? I will say that I do have that confidence. I won't say it's any more pleasant, <laughs> but I I do know, I mean, I've learned this through many books that when it, I know when it's not working, which is almost always, and that 
I will have an idea that will take a great deal of time to implement, meaning a week, right? And I will I will resist it. And then now I resist it for, for less time because I'm like, it, you you can't work for a week on it, you know? What if, so it doesn't work, you've worked for a week. What, what, I mean, you're so lazy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I now I can talk myself into it much faster um, because I trust that instinct of mine. And now sometimes it doesn't work, you know, and mm. that's fine. It's just a week of work. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, let's go back to the beginning a little bit. I know that when you were younger, I know you wanted to be a writer for a really long time from when you were little, right? And when you were oh. 16, you allegedly wrote a novel, um, a gothic ghost story, which apparently you tried and failed to publish. T tell us about that experience. That is true. I wrote a kind of Wuthering Heights. Sometimes I tell people I wrote a sequel to Wuthering Heights, which isn't true. I wrote a fan wow. fiction of okay. a gothic okay. romance. Um, you know, I guess we would call it now. Um, and uh, I, I entered a young adult fiction contest. Now, young adult fiction was not a category in this is 1986 or something. Um, they meant writers under 18 could could send in um, a novel and get it published if they won wow. the contest. I did not win the contest. <laughs> <laughs> did you that get any not feedback? What they were thinking. No, 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 no. I mean, the one that won, I bought a copy on eBay a few years ago just because I it was I was obsessed obsessed with it. Called I don't know where it is now because I forget the author's name. It's called Buck, and it's about a new boy in town in high school who has a secret. And the secret is that his parents are divorced. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's so, I mean, so shameful I, for him. <laughs> so different from what I was presenting <laughs> that like, I understand why that got published. <laughs> yeah. How amazing. Wait, so you bought it on eBay because you're obsessed with it now as a Pulitzer Prize winning author? No, I mean, I bought it 10 years ago. I wasn't a Pulitzer oh, Prize right. winning author. I just thought <laughs> I got to get a copy of this book before I can't get a copy of it because I'm sure it wasn't a bestseller. It just was yeah. won yeah. that contest that year. Yeah. How amazing. I wonder what happened to that author. I mean, I should find the book and Google it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because this, I mean, it would probably be a reverse conversation of the one I'm having with you where someone's going, wow, I had this, I had this novel published before I was 18 and then I haven't done anything since. Yeah, but for all I know, it's, you know, Jodi Picot. I don't know who I could, I don't remember the name, you know, yeah. it didn't mean anything at the time. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you were writing from this really young age, really, and writing seriously, you'd written a full novel. And then I think after college, you did an MFA, you were living in New York. Is that right? And yeah. And you were living in walk-ups and doing all sorts of different jobs, chauffeurs and bartending and all this sort of stuff to try and make rent while you're trying to write your big novel. But it it took you a while, didn't it? It took you till you were in your 30s to, to publish. Is that right? What was that like? Yep. I wrote, um, I wrote a novel in college that I moved to New York to try to publish when I was 21. <laughs> and that didn't work because of course it was terrible. But, uh, and then I began work on another novel that I finished in graduate school. I moved to Montana in the Rocky Mountains up in the Northwest. And I tried to publish that one. I got an agent from it. 
Um, I was by then 27. Uh, then I wrote another novel. <laughs> I was living in Seattle. One that I sent to my agent and it was so bad that we never spoke of it again. Wow. So he or she never replied? Never. I knew that he got it. It, it was, we just never spoke of it. And I was too insecure to bring it up. We never spoke of it. And he would refer to it now and then. He would say, I keep it in my nightstand to just remind us all where we came from. Oh um, but that's how bad it was. And then I wrote, I during that time, I was slowly writing short stories. And that's what I first published, um, I think, in like 1999. So okay. I was you know, 29 years old. So how did you, how did you persevere when you did you feel intrinsically that you were good and or did you intrinsically feel that this was just the thing that you wanted to do and there was nothing else that you were going to do for a living I think it's both I think it was, there must have been some sort of youthful male arrogance in me I certainly saw it in other men around me the women did not seem to have that awful quality but <laughs> um uh it's what I really wanted. And I had already at a young age made sacrifices to do, you know, financial sacrifices. I moved away from New York City. I couldn't afford to live there. And I wasn't willing to get a job in magazine publishing and, and create this whole other life that would take over everything and would not allow me to write. I wasn't willing to do it. So I, I left all my friends from college and I moved to Montana. I lived on very little, but so did everyone else and moved to Seattle and I was willing to do, to live on very little. And I tell my students all the time, I give, I, I give them a cookbook. I'm like, I'm like, this is a bowl of, this is a recipe for soup that will last you all week and it will cost you a dollar 50. Cause that's, <laughs> you know, that's what I, I, I ate a tuna sandwich every day for lunch for eight years because wow. it's the cheapest way to get by. And like, I loved it. It was it was frustrating because I wasn't getting published, but I was willing to make that um, sacrifice. And I was willing to force other people around me to sacrifice, too, because I couldn't meet them for drinks. You know, I had a, a boyfriend who we couldn't go on vacation. You know, we couldn't do anything because we were so broke because I couldn't make money from something that took up the majority of my time. So interesting. I think it's really important to mention money, actually, because people rarely do. And although it may be a passion, if it's also going to be a job and you have to live off it, then, you know, it's just I think it's I, yeah, I think it's really interesting that you give practical advice about it to your students because it's you know, it's how people live. You can't you can't pay the rent with passion. So. Well, yeah. And, you know, even my friend who I swim every day with is Daniel Handler, who's the Lemony Snicket writer. He right. certainly has lots of money, but he he had to live on nothing um, when he started out. And that is still what both of us like. Like we like to go and meet and get a burrito, which is the, the cheap thing to get in San Francisco, or have big dinner parties, which we always did because it's cheaper. Everyone else brings the wine and you make spaghetti and it costs you $3, you know, and that's still what we like. I don't like going to a fancy restaurant, particularly because it's not... I'm not trained on that at all. Mm. Uh, mm. 
And so it's also feels a little more, it's bohemian, you know, we're not bohemians anymore, but like, I just seem like a, I try to tell my students, like, if that lifestyle felt, sounds bad to you, then you need to make a lot of money somewhere else or yeah. marry money yeah. or whatever. But I'm like, none of that. I don't know anyone who made it that way, just so you know. And I know hundreds of writers. Everyone made it the way I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, I mean, let's talk a little bit as well about your earlier books, because when you did start getting published, it's not like they went unnoticed. And I find that really interesting. And obviously you refer to this a little bit with Arthur Less as well, but you know, your second book, or sorry, your second novel, which is your third published book, The Confessions of Max Tivoli. I mean, John Updike compared that book to Proust and Nabokov in, I think, the New York Times. Um, the New Yorker. The New Yorker, right. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, at this point, presumably, after your years of eating tuna sandwiches and uh, moving away from New York, you're thinking, right, this is it. This is my moment. And then your books don't go on to sell brilliantly and you're beginning to feel a bit midlisty again. What does What was that time like for you? I mean, I think it would be unseemly for me to have any complaints at all. <laughs> I don't want to come on here and gripe because I've seen older writers complain about the things that happened in their youth and it's it's not pretty. Uh, I will say I probably have exactly the career that that agents tell their writers they should have. Like it's supposed to go like this. You know, okay. it's not supposed to go suddenly and then at the top like that. I'm, I'm just going to say for listeners who can't see you moving your finger <laughs> that uh, <laughs> that Andrew is moving his finger on an upward trajectory, upward a slow, a slow upward trajectory. A slow upward trajectory because you what you don't want to do is be a huge hit debut novelist and then never live up to what people's excitement I mean, write other perfectly good books but no one's ever excited about it again that would be a really hard experience in life mm. um i think being recognized at 70 might be a nicer experience but you probably would have forgotten you were even a novelist at that point you know <laughs> i mine was good because i had like a big bolt of success on my third book that um was life-changing for me because it meant I really was, I leapt into a different realm of, 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 of meeting other writers, which is mm. the only thing that I, before social media, we never met readers except at some book event. We only met other writers. And that's the only way where you feel like you're in, in with the crowd of people you admire. That was great. But like, then people, it became financial again. Like, then people didn't buy the next two books and it's mm. not like anyone made a movie out of anything so then you just have to get by with some humiliating things <laughs> what do you mean by humiliating going back to tuna sandwiches or just going back to not touring and stuff like that uh, some tuna sandwiches but i would um I would look every day for any teaching job there was and apply to te every single teaching job around the world that seemed doable. If it was somewhere, you know, I was then married at the time. And so it's not like we were going to move somewhere. Um, 
but he would have been willing to move to like New York City or something, you know, like to find a job. But I would get visiting things, anything. And, and this won't mean anything to many of your readers, but to, you know, to go, go to Wichita, Kansas for three months, which is not anyone's vacation land. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is all I'll say. Okay. Okay. Alone, you know, and I did that like a lot. Uh just to get by. So a little bit like Arthur Less in Less is Lost, which we'll come to, where he's sort of traveling around America, trying to find all these sort of adjunct things to to get out of debt. Yeah, in fact, one of the chapters I cut at the last minute was him in Wichita, Kansas. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> because it was just so weird. Yeah. How funny. Well, look, just going back to Less, the first one for a minute. So, So when you got to that, We've talked a little bit about how that book morphed from serious to comic, but then that actually didn't sell very easily, did it? T tell me about that process. How? What was the selling process like for Les um, in this in the U.S. and also I know you've mentioned the U.K. before. It was well, it was pleasant in the U.S. in that I already had I had an editor who I loved who changed publishing houses, and so. When they do that, the editors have a sort of magic moment where they can get books. Everyone's excited to see what they're going to choose. So she did um, uh, accept my manuscript. It's not like I, she gave me a huge advance for it, but it was the kind of thing where you're like, okay, I get to write another book. I, or I'd already written the book, you know, I, it was all finished. But in the UK, my publisher dropped me, um, who had published my other books, and we sent it to 12 different publishers and they all said no. Ouch. And I have to say, you know, oddly, he, here was maybe was being, having published so many books that had very different expectations of less. I did not expect it to make money. I wanted to, first of all, work hard enough on it that I wrote exactly the book that was in my head. And it's rare when you get to do that. And I did feel when I finished that book, this is exactly what I wanted. I'm so proud of it, no matter what happens. And then the rollout of it in the United States was so pleasant. It got incredible reviews and um, it didn't hit bestseller list, but it sold enough to, to, to as proof that I could still be a viable. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Writer, I could get to write another book. And so I was super happy about how it all went. And it came out in the summer of 2017. And then, so by April, 
late April, 2018, I'm not thinking about the book anymore, you know? Um, and that is when the Pulitzer Prize is apparently announced. Yeah. So amazing. What was that like? Uh, a, a huge shock. I was, uh, I had taken a job again, trying to, as director of an artist residency in, uh, in Italy, in Tuscany, which was, is, um, it sounds very glamorous, but it was not. <laughs> I was, there was a, a, the the owner of the place had a, a, a pug um, who was incontinent and I was training it to wear diapers because oh, um, Margaret Atwood was coming and I thought we couldn't have that going on. So I had literally put it in diapers and put it in the owner's bed, tucked everybody in before I my boyfriend showed me uh, his phone that started getting texts. Um, and we got the news very late um, because we weren't paying attention to our phones. We were in the wilderness, kind of. So it was a real, real, real surprise. I don't really know how the Pulitzer operates. Do you do you know that you've been nominated by your publishing house, or you don't? It's just. Well, I mean, you hope you hope you've been nominated, but I don't know when that happens. Months, six okay. months before or something, and. Uh, they don't tell you the finalists. They don't, you don't know anything about it. They just announced it at a luncheon in New York, I think. And they uh, broadcast it because journalists in America care a great deal because it's mostly goes to journalists um, and teams of journalists. So there's, hmm. you know, dozens of journalists who win Pulitzer Prizes. And then, you know, publishers are paying attention because there will be one fiction winner, one nonfiction winner, and you just hear the winners and then everyone starts calling everyone except me because no one had my Italian number. <laughs> <laughs> How amazing. So you could just bask in the glory without being bothered by journalists for the next 10 days. <laughs> I, it was great. I mean, I, I, I broke into the wine cellar. I just, and I was talking <laughs> because I was hours, you know, ahead. I could sit and talk with people in the United States deep into the night. You know, it was great fun. Wow. Wow. What I love about Less is that it's it's a real grower of a book. It starts feeling quite, I mean, it's funny and it's interesting, but in a way I found it, it felt quite, just quite jolly for a while. And it, it's, it's actually a very profound book, but that really crept up on me. I think as it creeps up on Arthur Less, it's sort of um, the sort of meaning of what he's doing because he's this sort of, I'm just going to say for listeners he's this sort of very foolish character who doesn't really realize his own good fortune and he's a fool in the not in the kind of um clever Shakespearean sense but almost more in a sort of commedia dell'arte sense he's sort of he's sort of doing silly things and then kind of landing on his feet somehow it's it's fun but yeah that's yes then he sort of learns all these life lessons and it's um I can, I can absolutely, I mean, it's a very, very worthy winner um, for a prize like that, I think. Um, but also an extremely enjoyable book, which is, you know, I think not what always people always think of for these very big literary prizes. So it's a good, it's a good popular winner, I think. I, luckily, I, I, I was not on that committee, so I have no idea what a Pulitzer Prize winner is supposed to look like. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to that, what did those those British publishing houses that that um, said no? Did they give you any feedback uh, when they were turning it, it down? Passed, it was not passed on to me. Um, okay. Uh, I, I I I don't I don't know what it was. The impression I got was simply looking at the figures. There was no reason to publish someone like me. 
Okay. And okay. I'm not sure anybody understood the book somehow. Mm. I don't know what to say about that, but they were not um, motivated to understand it because it would have to be like a surefire bestseller um, for them to be motivated because I was just a, you know, dead in the water to them. And presumably yeah. one of them picked it up after it won the Pulitzer or had it oh, already been yeah. Oh, up? the next day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great. Uh, no question. Everybody was calling then. Yeah. That must have been fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to make clear, like, I already had a good time publishing the book. That yeah. had nothing to do with fame or money. And I know that all sounds phony, but I had reached a level where I was like, I am so proud of this book. It was noticed and it was um, celebrated in the way a book should be. Um, mm -hmm. And I was, that was a really happy experience for me. My publisher was wonderful about it. And um, it was a really nice experience. That's so Before, wonderful to hear. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful to hear. And I think it's very easy to get lost in a lot of the sort of bells and whistles that come or don't come with publishing. I mean, you know how unpleasant the writing experience can be, the publishing experience, I mean, like all of it is can be very unpleasant. And so it is, it's good to at least remember what the fun part is. Like, why would we do it? Except if you're just a compulsive person who has to do it. Um, and And it is certainly like, the writing every day, there has to be some, some jolt you get from that, from making something that you're happy with, that was in your head and now can be in the world, has to be its own pleasure. You know, like they have to be their own pleasures that don't have anything to do with dressing up in a tuxedo, because that is not writing. <laughs> that is something <laughs> completely different. You can go up and dress up in a tuxedo anytime you want. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, I, I try to remember what is the real fun part. Yes. Also, I think in Britain, British male winners of prizes still don't dress in tuxedos, as far as I can see. What I do think they that, wear? I think they just wear smarter than usual, but not especially smart clothes, from what I can see, at example, for example, at the Booker. Um, so I. That's me. I, <laughs> you could pick up a secondhand tuxedo for cheap. Why not just get one? Don't but, you think? Don't you think in in the writing world there's a bit of fetishizing of um, not being smart and and sort of being uh, devoted to the craft and maybe that those two things are at odds with one another. Not from everyone, but you know, as a generalization. Yeah, but I think that's its own performance. You know, I have seen, I have been to a huge gala in New York where a writer was being celebrated and there were hundreds of people there of the most of wealthy New Yorkers and that writer decided not even to wear a tie. And I was, I thought, you own a tuxedo. It's a performance, <laughs> okay. you know? And I found that um, as phony as dressing up too much, to be yeah, honest. Sure. You know, sure. I, I like to dress up because I understand it's phony and I want to make it clear that I know that it's a it's a mirage. It's mm -hmm. not writing. Um, whereas when you start blurring the line to me, I think that's strange. Okay. Um, yeah, fair enough. Um, well, I mean, Arthur Less actually is quite scathing in Less about prizes isn't he 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 is obviously he's had this long relationship with a Pulitzer Prize winning poet and who 
sort of features in the second book also. And he says at one point, um, the slots, I think he says this, or maybe someone else says it, the slots for winners are already set. They know the kind of poet who's going to win. So he's a sort of, there's a sense in the book that prizes are not really where it's at. So it's it's very ironic that this is the book that went on to win you a prize. Uh, what do I know about prizes? You know, it's not like <laughs> I had won any. I, that, I was just Im- imagining it. I certainly... I guess I'll I'll hold to, even though that character is is much more cynical um, than than I am about that stuff. I think I had already understood that prizes really are quite random and um, not attached to reality, especially if it's a, a committee. Yeah, they pick up a vibe in the air and they feel pressure among themselves to to go with that. You know how every year, you know, there's so many amazing books comes out but everyone settles on two that are they're all going to say are the best of the year it's just it's a little bit of lazy journalism and a bit of um and group think because you don't want to be the one who is the outsider except if you're if if that's your kind of sure. way of talking and you I, see that happen and you're like that's not fair especially if it's your book that didn't make <laughs> didn't become <laughs> one of the two you know I wonder if it's made worse or better by social media actually because I mean you're not really on social media are you I... you'll find me on Instagram okay I, I avoid the others yeah okay I think on Twitter where people discuss the book stuff a lot I wonder whether I wonder whether that group think still exists enormously but also whether there's actually room for a little bit more kind of nuance where people pop up and say actually I really liked this one whereas if you when you didn't have social media you would just have columnists or reviewers and they were fewer so I honestly have to say I don't know yeah it's just it's yeah, possible it's because of the, the quick movement of that cycle on Twitter that people would pick a, there'd be a new um uh, obsession every mm. few days and therefore you could you have a variety but I don't know mm. okay well Let's talk about Less is Lost, which is the sequel to Less, which came out this year and is also fantastic. I, I think a little a little more melancholic, perhaps. It's a slightly different book. And instead of traveling the world, Arthur Less is traveling America, which feels very topical for so many reasons. But your agent, I know you've been quoted as saying in the past, told you not to write it. Let's talk about that a little she hates it now that that's all I'll I'll say because she denies it. But her daughter is like, that is so typical of her to forget that. She totally told <laughs> me not to write it. Um, so I, I and I realized that I only recently realized that I think to some people it looks like a cynical move to write a sequel to a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. And in fact, it was it was not that at all. I was told not to do it um, because, for lots of reasons. Um, and I didn't do it. I wrote another, once again, I started off writing a very different book that was a disaster. And I had to forget about the fact that people might actually read this book and think think back to that same moment when I was swimming and I was like, I think I have an answer. Why don't I try it out? I have nothing to lose. I tried to think that way. And the answer was that I already had some pre-made characters who could who could go on this road trip, I didn't have to invent new ones, and that I would just make it a book about Arthur Less again. And that's what I tried, and I loved being back there, and so I just did it 
against advice. <laughs> trying fun. to access that joy of writing again, you know, mm -hmm. trying to access that and not think about marketing or those things, which I'm not smart about anyway. Mm, how fun. Why, what was the advice about not writing it based on, do you think? Um, I think that it was unseemly. Okay. You know, you don't write Moby Dick too. You don't, you don't, you're not supposed to, to, to follow up your important work of art with, um, you know, Guernica the, the next day, you know, another Guernica paint. You don't do that. Except the thing is you do. Yeah, like, but the thing is people do it all the time. And in they fact, do it all art, the time. art is a really good example, but also in, I mean, Updike did it. I mean, Strout's doing it a lot now. Um, so yeah. it's, it's uh, it, it does actually happen a lot. So I'm interested in that response. Although I also can understand why that might be the knee jerk response. For some reason, it it makes sense in a way, even though people do it and are successful with it all the time. Well, and I think maybe there's also, because um, um, I'm supposed to call it a follow up, not a sequel in that I worked hard so that if you didn't read less, it would make still make sense to you. It's not like less has a major, has a plot. You know, it's not a lot to know. I think they're afraid that people won't, buy a sequel unless they read the first one obviously you're not buying you know the but 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 if you do something like elizabeth strout you don't have to read the other books to be enter this one there's no re you know it's just part of the same universe mm -hmm. um and that's it was great to see so many writers during this pandemic i think we all went to the place that we felt where we felt most comfortable and um happy to be writing because the world is so scary and and that's why so many writers wrote follow-ups to books, even from long ago. Mm, yeah. I think you can really sense in the book how much you enjoy being with those characters. And that's so much fun for a reader to feel the joy of the writer kind of emanating through the pages. That's great to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's a, he is, I, I, I've kept on trying to unpick when I read these novels why he is enjoyable to be around because he shouldn't be in many ways the idea that he would be unlikable which is what people tell less his character and his fictional book swift would you know they say that's not going to be likable and i it's funny to to be with this character who's sort of always moaning about what's going on with him and and still really want to spend time with him i wonder if you know as the writer I don't know. I don't know if this is a bit like asking, you know, an English speaking person to explain like English syntax, but yeah. Like why is he so enjoyable to, to be with? It's, it's a funny conflict. I think that he should be annoying, but he's wonderful. I, all I can think of, I don't really know why I enjoy being there is that it is a, a person of real um, innocence, maybe ignorance, maybe blindness who is, uh, who is forced to open his eyes to to realities and 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 rather than in most books there would be a fall from innocence and an embrace of maturity he recommits to innocence and i like that idea <laughs> you yes. know like at it, it in each of the climaxes in the chapters or even at the ends of the books it's not like he submits to the 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 breakdown of the world he's like i'm going back in you know like because yes. i maybe it'll be better next time 
and that's hopeful. Yes, I think that's that's right. And especially in the second book where times are turbulent in this American landscape, it feels yeah. very hopeful and almost in a sort of childlike way to sort of, as you say, recommit to that innocence and um, and sort of take us along with him, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's what I needed to do in that the particular news cycle I wrote this through. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, perfect character to take you there, as as you say. I read in an interview, you were quoting someone, and I'm afraid I can't remember who it was, but I just thought this was so interesting that I want to talk about it with you just for a second. The quote was, what you want in a novel is for everything to point in the same direction, which I think is really interesting, particularly for sort of road trip novels, which both Less and Less is Lost are. Can we talk about that a little bit? How do you interpret that statement? Sure. I mean, I think it's me. <laughs> think oh, it's is it? Me. Oh, great. Yeah. I mean, that's, I've I, maybe it. I'm, I've, I've forgotten if I'm quoting, it must be someone else who has said that also, that I don't think it could be a new thought, but it's what I tell myself. Because like in a road trip novel, it's it's harder because it's um everything's not connected. You know, it's new characters all the time. It's, mm. it's, 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 you know, it's, it's not, um, sitting in the same house for two weeks and having a marriage fall apart and come back together. It's 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 new places and adventures. But what I mean by everything pointing same places, for instance, in Less is Lost, the first version, there was not his father at the end of the book. And there's a elderly author that he's he's traveling with. That person was not searching for his daughter. There was none of that was there. And then when I went through it to revise it, I said, Actually, this book is about um, fathers, so I'm going to make it. I'm going to make everything about fathers, in a way that it wasn't before. And then, more specifically, you start to look at imagery that you can repeat, so that in if in you can, when you have a choice, you're like, well, I'll make them all about rabbits, so the book is full of rabbits, or you know, like it just so it feels like it's about one thing. And for a comic novel, it means that you can set up a joke on page one that you pay off on the final page and sort of nest them all inside so that it feels like it's a structure and it's about the same thing. And that's hard because when I start a book, I think it's gonna be about everything in the world. And of course it is and it fails at that, but it becomes very good about one thing and it's not the thing I went out. <laughs> like, I don't think about my, I don't have problems with my father. He's a wonderful man. <laughs> You know, I don't have father problems, but uh, the book did. So that, oh, well, I guess I'm I'm all in on that. You know, as, I can't resist it. I've learned to to um, submit to it and, and commit to it, like go all in on whatever the book seems to be about. How many drafts do you tend to do? And how many drafts does it take you to get to that sort of realization? Like, oh, this is going to be about fathers. I have to now go back in and, you know, redirect everything towards fathers. I, w I just put everything in. Oh, wait, I'm going to, uh, it doesn't matter. No one's watching this anyway, but I have piles and piles of, of drafts. I mean, it's got to be 25 that oh, wow. are, I printed out. I had bound. I always printed out um, two pages to a page. So it looks like a book. So it doesn't look like the way it does on the screen. So I'm I'm reading it almost like it's someone else's book. And I just have so many. And uh, 
it just takes me so much to 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 get it right. I think the first probably takes me a year and a half to write the book from beginning to end and about a year to revise it. Okay. Wow. So you do one draft in a year and a half and then another 24 over the next. Wow. That is exactly right. Yeah. So when you see that first draft, which you also bind, is that right? Oh, yeah. yeah, so yeah. You, wow. So you bind basically the, the dirty draft, as some people call it. I mean, I, I find that thought slightly horrifying because my first drafts are really dirty and I feel like binding them would would make me you know sort of confront me with how awful they are somehow it sure does <laughs> <laughs> it's not pleasant I mean when I and I know it doesn't make sense to my agent who I send it to you know it doesn't even make sense to her but it is well I mean I just bind it so that I can carry it you know so it's easy to get through um for practical reasons but I also make it so that I I don't fall into the spell of of seeing what I saw on the screen I have to confront what it really became like what if it were printed just like this wouldn't that be awful <laughs> <laughs> and it's a bad experience and it's uh you know it's like a time to have a nervous breakdown and then have long walks and think okay well now what and I experience that with every draft. It is okay. a bad experience every time and until it's perfect. And that can mean the very final copy edits. I'm making major changes. Wow. Yeah. What advice do you give students who feel terror or self-doubt? I mean, at any stage, but particularly between drafts where they sort of go back to their material and maybe think, God, this is awful. What's the point of even doing another one? What advice would you give them? The main advice I give, and I give this to myself, is it's harder for students because they're not, they don't have the skills of reading themselves as editors particularly. So they will often turn to, you know, up to even a dozen different people to give them opinions. But in both cases, what I say is there will be something that is glaringly wrong with the book. And um, maybe it's that, it, you know, there's a, 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 for some reason, there's a, a diamond heist in the middle of the book and the rest of it is all like a, a um, home for the aged and, and they're quiet, you know, like what is that doing there? And, and you will think, I guess I have to cut the diamond heist. And certainly the dozen people will tell you cut the diamond heist. And what I'm telling you is keep the diamond heist change the rest of the book because the fact that they're not, they don't match each other. The weird thing that's in the book, the weird way it's told something that's is the part that's you and you haven't figured it out yet and you haven't smoothed it over. So it's awful <laughs> because it's, it's like a personality change and it's not good. Um, and that's the part of the book you have to change everything else to match because that's the only thing that will feel fresh and new to any reader. If you get rid of the diamond heist or the mermaid or the, you know, fetus narrating the story or whatever it is that you've come up with, then you just have a sort of mediocre novel and we don't need more of those. Huh. God, I love that advice. Where is the diamond heist? I'm going to go through all my old manuscripts and find the diamond house, the heist and the fish it out. But like I, it happens to me every single book, especially because editors will tell me, 
to make changes. And I have to remember that, and this is again, my friend Daniel Handler's advice. I'm quoting him. He says, you're the doctor. The reader is the patient. The reader tells you where it hurts, but they cannot diagnose it because they do not see the thing in your head. And you have to ignore the advice they give you, but pay close attention to where they say it hurts. And you have to diagnose it. And it's really hard, but you can't listen to them because they're wrong about what to do. Mm. And um, I have to remember that all the time, you know, unless my editor, who's a wonderful editor, told me to cut the very end of the book that has a little sort of trick in it. Um, huh. Because she said, it's such a wonderful book that if we get to the end and there's like a sort of trick and it doesn't, and you don't pull it off, the readers will be furious and throw it across the room. So why, why risk it? And so I changed the rest of the book so that it would pay off. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is laborious writing, but, but aiming it for perfection. Is. Yeah. 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 And oh, amazing. I think, I think, it, I think I did it, but it took yes, a lot of work did. and she, she did not have any advice about that because she didn't know how to do that. How could she, she didn't know the, 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 the things underneath the book that I knew, um, that I knew how to make it pay off. I thought. I, I absolutely love this advice. And I think it really feeds into something that I think a lot about, um, cause I did a writing course a few years ago, which I mean, I absolutely loved and wouldn't regret in any way where you know you're doing giving feedback you know I write a shop workshop style yeah. and uh and I think in some ways that's really useful but when I look back on my book that didn't sell I can see things that are only in there because somebody told me in you know week three that that was a good thing or the reverse and I think that's really interesting I can see that now but at the time I just thought well I think I just didn't even think about it I was like well everybody thinks that's good so that's and everybody thinks that's bad so you know, and now I think I would have a different level of confidence about, oh, well, but they don't know what's going to happen next or what I'm trying to achieve. So I think this is such great advice. Yeah. Well, because you don't want a committee to write a novel. Yeah. If you enjoyed Write Off, please do share it with others. And please, please, please consider leaving a review on the iTunes app, which really helps other people find the podcast. Do come find me to chat on Twitter, where I'm at Francesca Steele, and Instagram, where I'm at Francesca Steele Writes. I'll put that in the show notes. Thanks, and see you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.